Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about ineffability. Ineffability, that's a platonic concept, that's a platonic value that uh, has found its way into classical Christianity. It's a very strong Calvinistic value that those in the know really affirm. They really like this value. It means a lot to them. Let me tell you a story. I was on a Discord server maybe, maybe like a week ago, and I was talking to this Christian. And an atheist joined the channel, and the atheist said, are you a theist? And the guy says, yes, I am a theist. He's a, he's a Christian, so he says, yes, I am a theist. And the atheist responds, and he says, so then you do not believe in God. And uh, the Christian was all confused. He didn't know what was happening, what was being explained. And he says, no, I, I am a theist. He's like, no, well, you then you do not believe in God. He didn't know where this uh, atheist was trying to lead the conversation, but I, I picked up right away that this atheist is uh, trying to point to this classical value known as ineffability, that God cannot have predicates, God cannot have a descriptor, God is uh, indistinguishable from nothing, basically, because he can't have any relations with the world. He is beyond intellect. And this is a classical Christian value. So I spent my time trying to explain to this Christian that if he denies ineffability, then he's denying classical Christianity. And and more power to that, uh, if you want to deny classical Christianity, that, that that's all the better. But you have to understand, uh, yeah, w when you deny ineff ineffability, you are denying classical Christianity. You are going outside the bounds. As James Dolezal, as he says, that you, you become a theistic mutilist. Uh, you become basically an open theist. So Dolezal, in his latest book, he goes through all these anti-open theist books, and he basically calls all those people to task for being basically open theists themselves. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. Theistic mutabilism. You are an open theist. A welcome to the party if you deny ineffability. So ineffability, let's start talking about this concept. What does it mean? And I have pulled up here Plotinus, and he is a third century Neoplatonist, and he perhaps gives the best definition, a definition that's carried on by Augustine after him. I'm going to read this phrase first, uh, just so that we could kind of get, get the basic concept of what ineffability means. Once you have uttered the good, and this is uh, Plotinus's name for God. So if you see the one or the good, those are synonyms. They mean God in Plotinus's theology. Once you have uttered the good, add no further thought. By any addition in and in proportion to that addition, you introduce deficiency. You know, you're adding predicates to God. You're adding parts to God. Parts can change. Parts can degrade. This is Platonistic theology. When you create relationships, you, you create degradation. Do not even say that it has intellection. You would be dividing it. It would become a duality, intellect and the good. The good has no need of the intellectual principle, which, on the contrary, needs it. So all creation needs God. Remember, the intellectual principle in Plotinus's theology spawns from the good. The good is ineffable. The good is perfectly simple. The good is pure actuality. And the intellect is kind of like a reflection that spawns out of the good. 
and that that's more of a mutable mutable type of essence. On the contrary, needs it. You Calvinists will always say God is in need of nothing. This is that concept. This is that idea. It's a Platonic value, and they hijacked uh, certain texts from Paul to try to make this claim that. This is what Paul is meaning when he's talking about God doesn't need anything with human hands. They, they, they impose this value of God being totally outside any realm of getting benefit from outside himself. Not a Christian value. That's a Platonic value as we're seeing here. Contrary needs it and attaining it, it is shaped into goodness and becomes perfect by it. The form thus received sprung from the good brings it to likeness with the good. Thus the traces of the good discerned upon it must be taken as indication of the nature of that archetype. We form a conception of its authentic being from its image playing upon the intellectual principle. The, the image of itself, it has communicated to the intellect that contemplates itself. Thus all the striving is on the side of the intellect, which is the eternal striver and eternally the attainer. The being beyond neither strives since it feels no lack, these are the Calvinist values again. So we're talking about the one, we're talking about God, we're talking about the good. The being beyond neither strives, since it feels no lack, nor attains, since it has no striving. Calvinists say God can't be in need of anything from outside himself. Platonic value. Since it feels no lack, nor attains, since it has no striving. And this marks it off from the intellectual principle. The world has needs. The world has predicates. The world has relationships. To which characteristically belongs the striving, the concentrated strain towards its form. I'm going to go up a couple paragraphs and uh, read one more statement from this section. And then we'll move to a different section and continue talking about this Platonic idea in Plotinus' own work. It cannot be itself the good, since then it would not need to see or to perform any other act, for the good is the center of all else. The Calvinists will turn to Paul's phrases that God sustains all things, and they'll, they'll import these values, these platonic values, onto those phrases, and pretend that's what Paul's talking about. And it is by means of the good that everything has act. While the good is in need of nothing, therefore possesses nothing beyond itself. Remember, the good is eternally simple. The good is pure actuality. The good doesn't have outside wants and desires. It doesn't have change. It doesn't have parts. It, any parts, any relationship, any needs would cause degradation. It wouldn't be the ultimate good anymore. This is a maximally great being theology that's even... Even, uh, you know, I was on uh, Layton Flowers, I think, or the Trinity uh, Facebook page. These are the value sets that they are actually arguing for. This maximally great theology where, where God has to be conceived of the greatest being possible and a being that's in need is less than a being that's not in need. Going further to this statement, this is Plotinus again. Thus, the one, this is his name for God, the one, is in truth beyond all statement. Any affirmation is of a thing, but the all-transcending, resting above even the most august divine mind, possesses alone of all true being, and is not a thing among things. This is a pretty common element in this type of thinking, where God is a class above, uh, unique predicate, uh, and uh, only these things apply only to God. So it, it's a form of special pleading. 
you know, this is the Platonic theology where they have to posit this maximally great being. I'm putting quotes up there. And uh, nothing, all the arguments only apply to this maximally great being that they have imported this Platonic value set in order to create. Again, not not a biblical value set. In the Bible, God changes, God grieves, God God has uh, regrets, God suffers, God God uh, even bargains. King David bargains with him. He says, "I I will pray to you, Lord. If if I die, you won't get my prayers anymore. You won't get my praises anymore. So save me, because you know what? You value my praise. You value what I can give you. So you save me, and I'll praise you." A quid pro quo type of a situation there. God has needs in the Bible. God has desires in the Bible. God has wants and fulfills his wants. And sometimes his wants aren't fulfilled in the Bible. Not a platonic value. This is uh, contrary to what we're talking about here. This all transcending ineffable one. And is not a thing among things. We can give it no name because that would imply predication. Remember, no predicates. God can't be described in any positive way. But we can try to indicate in our own feeble way something concerning it when in our perplexity we object that it is without self-perception, without self-consciousness, ignorant of itself. We must remember that we have been considering it only in its opposites. We can only understand God through negation because uh, it's not like a negation like, oh, I don't have a hat and then someone has a hat. It's, it's a conceptually different negation, a negation that is beyond those categories. You can't ascribe having a hat or not having a hat to God, either one of those. This negative category that we're talking about is God is beyond categorically having or not having a hat. Right? Uh, th this is Platonic theology. If we make it knowable, an object of affirmation, we make it a manifold. If we allow intellection in it, we make it, at that point, Indignant, supposing that in fact intellection accompanies it, intellection by it must be superfluous. If we ascribe predicates to God, he's not God anymore. If we, we assign anything positively that could uh, distinguish God from, from non-being, um, we, we, we basically undo the Godhead. And this is what the, the atheist was trying to communicate to the Christian in this chat site, that classical Christianity has a God set up that's indistinguishable from nothing. There's no difference between God existing and not existing in classical Christianity. God does not have predicates. God does not have parts. God is beyond anything we could comprehend. God is a non-being, essentially. And uh, the atheist is right. And the Christian, he didn't believe it. He didn't believe that this is classical Christianity. So I added some quotes from our good friend Augustine. Let's go take a look at what Augustine thought. Here's Augustine. Have I spoken of God or uttered his phrase in any worthy way? Nay, I feel that I have done nothing more than to desire to speak. And if I had said anything, it is not what I desire to say. How do I know this except from the fact that God is unspeakable? What I have said, it has been unspeakable, could not have been spoken. So God is not even to be called unspeakable because we, because to say this is to speak of him. God's unspeakable because even to say he's unspeakable is to even to speak of him. He's, he's beyond conception. He's a beyond predicate. He's beyond understanding. 
Thus, there arises a curious contradiction of words, because if the unspeakable is what cannot be spoken of, it is not unspeakable if it can be called unspeakable. And this opposition of words is rather to be avoided by silence than to be explained away by speech. We can't be talking about God. And yet God, although nothing worthy of his greatness can be said of him, has condescended to accept the worship of men's mouths, and has desired us through the medium of our own words to rejoice his praise. For on this principle it is that he is called Deus. Deus, Deus ex, you know, Deus. For the sound of those two syllables in itself conveys no true knowledge of his nature, but yet all who know the Latin tongue are led when that sound reaches their ears to think of a nature supreme in excellence and eternal in existence. I posted this to that Christian guy, and he's like, no, Augustine, Augustine didn't accept ineffability. It's, it's, it's right there. He's talking about it. It's throughout his works. This, this is a very critical value in Augustine's theological uh, set, his, his value set. Clement of Alexandria before him, in, in the Christian Platonists of Alexandria, that book, Clement is actually identified as the first true Neoplatonist. How, how Platonism worked is the Christians picked up pretty early on Platonism, and they actually uh, spearheaded developments in Platonic thought. Clement was one of those thinkers that helped to develop Neoplatonist thought into uh, the, what it ultimately ends up with. Here's Clement on the same topic. This discourse respecting God is most difficult to handle, for since the first principle of everything is difficult to find out, and absolutely first and oldest principle, which is the cause of all other things, being and having been, is difficult to exhibit. For how can that be expressed which is neither genius, nor difference, nor species, nor individual, nor number, nay more, is neither an event, nor that which an event happens, no one can rightly express him wholly, for on account of his greatness he is ranked as the all, and is the father of the universe. Nor are any parts to be predicated of him, for the one is indivisible, whereby it is also infinite, not considered with reference to inscrutability, but with reference to its being without dimensions and, having, and not having a limit. And therefore it is without form and name, and if we name it, we do not do so properly, terming it either as the one or the good or the mind or the absolute being. Listen to that. Listen to that. He's using the same terms as the Platonists. He's picking up on middle Platonism. He's picking up on Platonism. He's, he's taking those terms and he's developing them. Uh, before him, there's Basilides. We'll go to Basilides, who's a Gnostic, who really pressed these ideas, these Platonic ideas, before even Clement. But Clement goes on. He says, or the good, or the mind, or the absolute being, or father, or God, or creator, or Lord. We speak not as supplying his name, but for want we use good names in order that the mind may have these as points of support. We can't actually talk about God. When we talk about God, those names don't aptly apply to God. They, they don't tell us really anything about God. They're just for our benefit. That's my own that's my own, what I'm saying right now, just trying to explain to you what this quote is doing. That's his idea that when we talk about God, it's not truly, not truly representing God in any tangible way. God is above predication. God is above our language. He goes on, but for want, we use good names in order that the mind may have these points of support so as not to err in other respects. For each one by itself does not express God, but altogether are indicative of the power of the omnipotent. For predicates are expressed either from what belongs to things themselves 
or from their mutual relation. Remember in Platonism, God can't have relationships. God can't have predicates. But none of these are admissible in reference to God, nor any more is he apprehended by the science of demonstration, for it depends on primary and better known principles, but there is nothing antecedent to the unbegotten. This is Platonism. This, this is ineffability. It's a Christian value, a Christian value as of uh, Basilides, a Gnostic who introduces the concept. He's, he's one of the protogenesis uh, of uh, this, this idea of ineffability. Philo had some ideas on ineffability, don't get me wrong, uh, but his ideas of ineffability were more of incomparability. And we'll, we'll look at a paper that explores that idea, how he differed from the Neoplatonists. He was more of a middle Platonist, where those terms more represented uh, uncomparability on different species, but not above uh, predication. That's Philo's idea. Hippolytus talks about Basilides and what Basilides believed. Basilides was one of these Gnostics who really pressed these Platonistic ideas into Christianity. Here's Basilides as quoted by Hippolytus. Time was, says Basilides, when there was nothing, not even, however, did that nothing constitute anything of existent things. But to express myself undisguised and candidly and without any quibbling, it is altogether nothing. But when he says, I employ the expression was, I do not say that it was, but I speak in this way in order to signify the meaning of what I wish to allocate. I affirm then, he says, and it was altogether nothing, for he says that it is not absolutely ineffable, which is named. So, although undoubtedly we call this ineffable, but that which is non-ineffable, for that which is non-ineffable is not denominated ineffable, but is, he says, above every name that is named. For, he says, by no means, for the world are these names sufficient, but so manifold are the divisions that there is deficiency of names. Since therefore nothing existed, I mean not matter, not substance, not what is insubstantial, nor is absolute, nor composite, nor conceivable, nor inconceivable, nor what is sensible, nor devoid of senses, nor man, nor angel, nor God, nor in short, any of those objects that have names or are apprehended by sense or that are cognizized by intellect, but are thus cognizized even with greater minuteness still when all things are absolutely removed. Since I say nothing existed, God, non-existent, whom Aristotle styles conception of conception, but these Basilians, non-existent, inconceivably, insensibly, indeterminately, involuntarily, impassively, and unactuated by desire, willed to create the world. Now I employ, he says, the expression willed for the purpose of signifying that he did so involuntarily and inconceivably and insensibly. God is above predicates, imbecilities. God is above comprehension. God is not being or not being. He's above those predicates. You can't know anything positively about God. This is the idea of ineffability. It's a real value. It's a value that was endorsed by the Christian church and taught through the ages. So here's, here's a little uh, section from a paper called Ancient Ideologies of Ineffability and Their Echoes. And this it writes about Basilides. Basilides' particular theology of ineffability set him apart from contemporaneous writers who used the term as an adjective to describe the deity, like Philo, for example. He interpreted the common use of the term as one more in a string of attempts to name the deity, this time with the name ineffable. 
These writers, he claimed, failed to note that they were simply substituting a new name for the ones they considered inappropriate. They missed the central point that the deity cannot be named at all. Naming is giving predication. That's what needs to be denied if ineffability is true. Turning to a very similar paper, Negative Attributes in the Church Fathers and the Gnostic Facilities, it writes this. This is about Philo of Alexandria. Remember, he was a little bit after Jesus, kind of a first century author, very Platonized. He was uh, from Alexandria. Anytime you hear the word Alexandria, uh, that is synonymous pretty much in the Christian sphere with Platonism. There's a very good book, The Christian Platonists of Alexandria, which goes over this. And remember Clement of Alexandria, who we've already covered, he was perhaps the first Neoplatonist. He was blazing the trail in uh, the, the forefront of Platonic thought. He was, he, was, uh, he was innovating. He was innovating and getting Platonism down he, and becoming the father of Neoplatonism. So here's what we read in Philo, the use of negative attributes in the description of God, such as describing God as being invisible, incomprehensible, unnameable, ineffable, and the like is presented only as a way of expressing the scriptural principle of unlikeness between God and all other beings. In contradistinction to his own treatment of affirmative attributes, which is cast by him in a framework of Aristotelian Theories of logical propositions and predictables. Philo's treatment of negative attributes is free of any logical implications. Philo wasn't a true believer in ineffability. Is a little he's a little before the time where ineffability really came to the forefront in Platonic theology. It goes on and it reads this. In Albinus and Plotinus, however, the negative attributes are treated after a manner of Aristotle's logical propositions of the negative. Quality. On a side note, uh, Plato himself talks about non-being in his work on the Sophists, and those those distinctions looked like it was picked up by Basilides. And this paper that we're reading right now posits that there's probably lost Platonic words from which Basilides, the Gnostic, was drawing on in his conceptualization of ineffability. So that's one thing about the ancient world. We just don't have all the sources. So where it looks like people might be quoting or rehashing the same arguments, uh, different authors, the same argument, you, you might assume that there's a lost work from which they're both drawing. In Albinus and Plotinus, this is going back to the paper. However, the negative attributes are treated after the manner of Aristotle's logical propositions of the negative quality. To begin with, the corresponding to the term negation in its technical sense, as used by Aristotle, in contrast to the term privation, both Albinus and Plotinus use the term remotion. Then, the contrast between remotion and privation is conceived by them. After Aristotle and his commentary, Alexander as a contrast between a proposition in which the opposite of the predicate negated can be under no conceivable circumstances be affirmed of the subject and a proposition in which the opposite of the predicate negated can under certain conceivable circumstances be affirmed of the subject. Accordingly, with reference to God, both Albinus and Plotinus maintain that the negation of any predicate of God does not mean that its opposite can be predicated of him. It rather means the exclusion of God from the universe of discourse of the predicate in question. This is what we already talked about, this idea that uh, the negatives, God doesn't own a hat, God does not not own a hat. Those those conceptualizations, those categories of speech, just 
do not categorically apply to God in this conception of God as being ineffable. He's above predicates. Even these negative predicates can't even be applied to him because he's he's a he's a unique species. He's an he's he's uniquely above any predicate or any idea or thought. We can't ascribe anything positive to him. We can't understand him uh, in any real way. We we can't we can't conceptualize him. So anytime you try to do so, anytime you try to give him attributes or negate attributes, you're just categorically not talking about God and how he should be visualized. This is Platonic theology. This is theology endorsed by Augustine and Clement and those after him. Then also to both Albinus and Plotinus, negations can be expressed not only by propositions which are negative in quality, such as God is not divisible, God, remember God is perfectly simple, but also by propositions which are affirmative in quality, but in which the predicate is negative in form, such as God is indivisible. Remember, those predicates are above God. They, they don't apply to God in any conceptual sense. You could say it, and, and uh, your, your meaning is just, you fall short. Moreover, to both Albinus and Plotinus, God may be described not only by predicates which are negative in form, such as indivisible, but also by predicates which, though positive in form, are understood to be negative in meaning. As when, for instance, the term simple is understood to mean indivisible. Then further in Plotinus, negation in the sense of being excluded from the universe of discourse of certain predicates may be expressed by saying that God is before or beyond or above those predicates. He thus says that God is neither what is movable nor what is at rest because he is before motion and before rest, and also that he neither knows anything nor is there anything of which he is ignorant because he is beyond thought and beyond knowledge. And similarly, he has neither the not good nor the good because he is above good. Finally, in Albinus, the method of forming a conception of God as well as describing God by negation is compared to the method of our forming the conception as well as the definition of a mathematical point. The first method of forming a conception of God, he says, will be by the remotion of these sensible predicates from God in the same way as we form a conception of a point by its abstraction. From that which is sensible, namely by first forming the conception of a surface and then of a line and finally that of a point. In this passage, as we have tried to explain elsewhere, Albinus means to show that God is to be described negatively in the same way as a point is defined by Elisud negatively, that which has no part. So a point on a line. So that's, remember, go back to my video about who God is. I start by defining this. God is a point on a blank sheet of paper. And a point in mathematics doesn't have mass. It doesn't have volume. It's, it's like a non-entity. And this is their conception of God, that God is a non-entity. He doesn't have predicates. He doesn't have parts. There's no relation to anything else. He's beyond that conception. This is God, or so we are told. A single point on a blank screen. Notice that the dot is alone. Simple. God, we are told, is pure simplicity. Simple is good. Complex is bad. Complexity causes change. Change destroys perfection. Add even one point, and now God has relationships. God is now dependent. God can now change. 
God can now degrade. God is no longer perfect. To remain perfect, God cannot have parts. God cannot be described. God cannot have relationships. God forever sits alone in a timeless void, indescribable, ineffable, alone. Let's fast forward in history. Let's go to Thomas Aquinas and the simplicity of God. So take those concepts, God's simplicity, God's ineffability, God's immutability. Those are fairly equivalent terms. They mean fairly the same thing. And when people deviate from this and they try to ascribe emotions to God, for example, this is why Bruce Ware is called out by James Dolezal, because Bruce Ware tries to ascribe emotions to God, which gives him predicates, which gives him parts. And guess what? Bruce Ware. Bruce Ware, thank you. Uh, thank you. Welcome to Open Theism. You are an open theist. You are a theistic mutabilist, according to James Dolezal. In his book, uh, All That Is In God. So back to Aquinas real quick. When the existence of a thing has been ascertained, there remains the further question of the matter of its existence in order that we may know its essence. Now, because we cannot know what God is, but rather what he is not, we have no means for considering how God is, but rather how he is not. Aquinas goes on, he says this, We can speak of simple things only as though they were like composite things which we derive our knowledge. Therefore, in speaking of God, we use concrete nouns to signify his subsistence, because with us only those things subsist which are composite, and we use abstract nouns to signify his simplicity. In saying, therefore, that Godhead or life or the like are in God, we indicate the composite way in which our intellect understands, but not that there is any composition in God. What Aquinas is saying here is our language is inadequate to even talk about God because God's not composite in nature. And when we talk about predicates, we talk about attributes, we talk about Things about God, we're adding predicates, we're, we're adding a division, we're adding multiplicity because that's how our minds work. But God's above those categories. God's perfectly simple. Those predicates just do not apply to God. God is on another level. And lastly, we're going to touch on a book, a fairly new book by James Doizel. And he writes, All That Is In God, Evangelical Theology and the Challenge of Classical Christian Theism. And his purpose in this book, what he tries to point out is that there's a lot of modern theologians who have departed from classical Christianity. They have created a mutable God, whereas classical Christianity, uh, Augustinian theology, John Calvin, Thomas Aquinas, they all endorse the metaphysics of simplicity, of ineffability. And that's uh, Dwezel's talking points. And so he's calling out modern theologians from departing from the classical faith. He calls them theistic mutabilists. It's, it's, it's lovely. It's a lovely book. And here's what he writes. Uh, this is his uh, evaluation of the historical evidence. And the reason is that because he is simple and purely actual, God is not capable of receiving new determinations or features of being, not even if he is sovereignly chooses to. Any change in God, even a non-essential one, would introduce new being or actuality into him. The Christian who believes that God experiences a change of any sort is no longer able to say, with the older theologians, all that is in God is God. Instead, he conceives that God's being is a mixture of divinity and the new qualities of being, which by his divinity has been augmented from the viewpoint of classical Christian orthodoxy. Such outcomes are unacceptable, for they undermine the very absoluteness of God's life and existence, and so by extension the believer's utter reliance upon God. When you add parts to God, he's saying, when you add change to God, 
you're you're adding elements to God that is not God essence. You're you're creating a new God who's not God. You can't say that all that is in God is God. You're departing from classical Christianity, and I welcome that. And uh, I I think a lot of Christians, if they understood ineffability, if they understood classical Christianity, they would be a lot more amenable to uh, things like open theism, which really takes the Bible on face value. And guess what? Most Christians are not too far off from open theists. They're already theistic mutabilists, as uh, James Doisel points out. And they've already departed from classical Christianity. You have rejected classical theism if you think God has parts. William Lane Craig says that God has parts. God is not a simple being. God has potentiality. He's not pure actuality. In the mind of William Lane Craig, William Lane Craig's called out in this book as well. So this book is great to to get all sorts of criticisms of all sorts of uh, delicious people that get criticisms about Bruce Ware. Bruce Ware, welcome to Open Theism. You're now an Open Theist brother. So I salute you, oh fellow Open Theist Bruce Ware. And where does James Dwezel get all his evidence that Bruce Ware is an Open Theist? Oh, surprisingly, in Bruce Ware's text against Open Theism, uh, he found the evidence right there. It was right in front of us. Welcome to Open Theism, Bruce Ware. Welcome to Open Theism, uh, rest of Christianity. You're theistic mutabilists. You don't believe in classical Christianity. You reject ineffability. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's funny. Uh, you talk to Christians. They don't understand the concept. They don't understand what ineffability means. They don't understand that this is a classical value that has been affirmed by the church since Augustine, at least. Uh, and if you want to go back to the Gnostics, back through uh, Basilides, these were their values. This is what they cared about. These are the concepts that, that drove their worldview, their perception of God. And when you're reading these texts, when you're reading Augustine, when you're reading Clement, and they say weird things about God not being able to be spoken about, or you, you got to look at their language. They are literally talking about these Platonic categories. And if you don't understand these categories, you're going to miss what's going on in those texts. This this is their worldview. This is their thought process. This is how they think and act and react. And Dwezel does a great job of categorizing this history. He goes through the historical evidence. This is what the church fathers believed. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Anyways, I got to get going. Uh, I got to go to bed, you know. So leave a comment, leave a like, uh, start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.